We thank you for these songs we've been privileged to sing. Enjoy to the Lord who has given himself for us. We praise you that you are that God and King, the Savior of our souls, the, the one who has drawn us to yourself by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that in this assembly today, as we continue to lift high the word, continue to probe the revelation that you have given us, we pray that you would minister to us by the Spirit of God, bringing understanding and direction, conviction, and spiritual nurture as we come before your word now and look at it specifically. We pray for those who know not Christ. We pray that you draw them to saving faith, that you illumine their understanding, open their eyes to see what they cannot in their own strength. And together here in this time, we pray that we might continue to labor for the glory of your name, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Through Christ, we ask this aid. Amen. Please be seated. One of the gravest dangers to our local church is how you perceive it. Viewing a local church the wrong way leads not only to upheaval and dysfunction, but it can actually botch the church's mission to glorify our Savior. Consider a parable. Like many fan bases, supporters of the New Britain Bombers love to wear team jerseys to the games. The jerseys bore the number and the name of each of the fans' favorite player, as is common, and they would come to celebrate and cheer on their player, wearing a team jersey, declared their loyalty and support for the team generally and for one of the players specifically. But one year, the coaches and players noticed large groups of fans wearing the same player's jersey, sitting together, and they would only cheer for their player. This is basketball, by the way. It's just assumed with me. <laughs> just thought of that, but you're not with me. You're in the gym, all right? They're in the gym. They're, they're right, very close to the court, and they are cheering for their player only. They seem less interested in the success of the team and riveted to the performance of that one player. And as time passed, things got even weirder. In the stands, the players began to notice, coaches began to notice that fights were breaking out between these different groups. You could tell which side they were on by the jersey number that they wore on their chest as they fought with each other. Now the players had nothing to do with this. They were a gifted, close-knit team focused on winning a championship. Each player knew his role on the team. They enthusiastically executed it. There was great chemistry there. There was a oneness, a closeness to the players. But these crazy fans... They disrupted everything because they failed to see that a team plays as a team, each player contributing uniquely to a unified goal, to win. Well, in a rough sense, it kind of pictures the foolish competitiveness that can plague a local church and that indeed plagued the Corinthian church. Now, there's a perfectly understandable reason for this because we probe a little deeper into the culture as we've been noting week after week here. 
In the Greco-Roman world, one of the great pastimes was to attend the lectures of these traveling wise men, these sophists, who would present their philosophies of human wisdom and they would seek to gain followers in this whole endeavor. Those gatherings might more resemble a sports league which every fan of every team attended every game. And so there were lots of different jerseys in the stands. And uh, the Corinthians were accustomed to all sorts of different jerseys worn by competing followers of these different philosophers, and they just knew how to fight with each other over it. So when the Corinthian church gathered, it was very natural for them to think in these cultural terms, to, as it were, sit in groups wearing the jersey of their favorite Christian teacher and scrapping with one another over who was the best speaker and presented the best rational argumentation. Just drawing from their culture and bringing it into the church led to this competitiveness, this fighting amongst themselves, though on the same team. To this point in the letter, it should be clear to us by now that the Apostle Paul is hammering away at the worldly way in which the Corinthians are thinking. He's argued that the polish and the rational technicality of man's wisdom, which they sought, was entirely out of sync with the message of the crucified Messiah. They were bringing a worldly concept into their church. He's saying this is an otherworldly faith that we have. So he rebukes them for downgrading the Christian faith by perceiving it as on a level with other human philosophies. God's truth is not arrived at by human reason. It is revealed. It is disclosed by God in His Word, illumined by the instruction of the Holy Spirit. Have you tasted it? Have you seen the truth of what God has revealed? If you have, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You don't come there on your own. He must illumine what He has revealed to be the truth to us. Paul is stressing this. He's saying this revelation isn't like what the world is looking for. Christianity is not going to stand a, a, a couple inches taller than the other philosophies. This is something from another world. It is supernatural truth and it turns everything in this world upside down. The weak are strong. The despised are the chosen by God. Sinners are justified. And a crucified Messiah is resurrected and ascended. Nobody came up with this. No eye has seen this. No reason has arrived at this truth. God Himself has revealed this truth to his people, and it's what saved you. What the Corinthians had to do was to perceive the church in these terms and then learn to align their lives to this gospel message that saved them. That's what's at stake here. If they continue to calibrate to the world in which they live, they continue to allow that to inform how their church is seen and how it lives together, all may be lost. And so Paul says, align your lives with the gospel message through and through. And doing this would unify them. It had to. 
This is what the gospel does. Rather, however, they were bringing the world into the church by wearing their favorite teacher's jersey, so to speak, and fighting in the stands with one another. So this is Paul's burden as we approach chapter 3 to challenge the Corinthians to enter into a greater maturity, to grow out of this immaturity of seeing the church in worldly terms and perceiving its true nature and how the gospel transforms our lives together. So the first line of consideration that he brings up is in verses 1 through 4 is this. Self-serving factions expose a local church's spiritual immaturity. Self-serving factions, groups within the church that are competitive with one another, are only there where there is spiritual immaturity. Verse 1 of chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving like in a human way? <clears throat> according to the thinking of man. For when one says, I follow Apollos, and another, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Peter, not here in this verse, but he'll bring that up again. Are you not being merely human, being fleshly, the Greek word, so your divisions into competitive groups rallying around a favorite teacher proves only that you are failing to understand the implications of the gospel. Jesus did not save you for this, Corinthian church. He saved you to unite you together in him as the head of the church. But I'm not able to get through to you because you are operating as worldlings using competitive quarreling in your relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is where you're stuck, and so I cannot even speak to you as to believers. Now that should suffice for these verses, for commentary. But sadly, they have stirred up a hornet's nest of misunderstanding that we simply have to address. I have no idea who I'm talking to on this topic. There might be a good number of us who have never heard of it before. But there may be a number of us who have grown up in churches where this is the instruction and the teaching. I'd like to address that because of that reason. And perhaps you'll run into it as you talk to other Christians from other churches in different settings. But there is a school of thought that suggests that Paul speaks here of three distinct categories of people. The first category all would agree on, and that is the unsaved. Those who are worldly. They are of the flesh, to use Paul's terminology. They belong to that realm. There is a second category, moving from that pole, of fleshly Christians. Like the Corinthians, they live much like unbelievers. And then there is a third group, that is the spiritual Christian, one who is godly and dedicated to the Lord. 
So the, so the, the teaching here is that Paul is presenting these three categories and he wants us to see them as three categories of people. Unbeliever, the fleshly Christian, or it's often used the, the Latin word from the Latin, the carnal Christian, and the spiritual Christian. So Paul is saying, you're clearly not unsaved. You're in that middle group, the fleshly type of Christian. I want you to become a spiritual type of Christian. Approaches differ, but generally speaking, those who hold this teaching promote some sort of second work of grace. That should make sense. They've been, uh, they were unsaved. They're now fleshly. Something has to happen. So what, did, what got them out of category one into category two? Conversion. So now some mechanism needs to get us out of category two into category three. From fleshly to spiritual. There's two unbecoming results of this view. One is the process of that second blessing, that moving from category two to category three, can get really weird, if not dysfunctional and harmful. Secondly, many who hold this teaching defend the salvation of people who profess faith but live like unbelievers the rest of their lives. I remember an article written by a man that described two friends. They were addicted to drugs. They lived a godless, wicked life, but they came to see Christ as Savior and were wonderfully converted. But then he went on to describe how they lived the rest of their lives exactly as they always had and died as drug addicts and godless people who live like the devil. But as he described this in the article, they were in category two. They were safe in Christ, living as fleshly Christians or as carnal Christians. This is the thinking. Now, no one denies that there are immature Christians. There are obviously Christians who operate in worldly, fleshly, sinful ways like the Corinthian church was acting. We would agree with that. But I believe we misread Paul to argue that he speaks here of a lower tier Christian creating a category of carnal Christian compadres who, expect, who we can only expect to live in sin. And I'll provide several reasons for rejecting this interpretation. But first, let's take a closer look at these verses. Verse 1. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now we could stress here, verse 1, they were not spiritual people. But I believe the stress is meant to fall on I was not able to address you. So the context was present, has presented them as spiritual people. Remember, when we read spiritual in the writings of Paul, what we're not, do not think like our culture. What spiritual means in this culture is not what Paul means. Never, never think of it in those terms. Spiritual to the Apostle Paul means one who has the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's a spiritual person. Spiritual people in Paul's writings are always people indwelt by the Spirit who has revealed the message of the Gospel to them. The Corinthians were indeed spiritual people. The problem was that Paul could not address them as such. 
They were failing to see the implications of the gospel in the way that they related to one another. But are they spiritual people? You could look at verse 1 if you want to just start here in 3.1 and say, well, no, they're not. Uh, I, I could not address you as spiritual people. We could conclude, so they're not spiritual people. No. He's just saying, I couldn't address you that way. Are they spiritual people? Think of it. What have we seen? They are sanctified and called to be saints. They are called and chosen by God, chapter 1. They are in Christ Jesus, chapter 1, verse 30. They are the mature in contrast to the lost, in 2 and verse 6. They are loved by God and recipients of His revelation through the Holy Spirit, chapter 2. They receive the Spirit who is from God and thus are able to understand the Gospel. They are people of the Holy Spirit, 2.15, and they are members of the Holy Spirit Brotherhood, chapter 3, in verse 1. He addresses them as brothers. Are they spiritual people in the context, and by the way, these are just highlights. I could, we could put up another screen with just as many evidences just to this point in the book, let alone with what comes. Are they spiritual people? They are indeed people indwelt by the Spirit of God. So Paul is not saying they're not spiritual. That is not spirit indwelt. He is saying he cannot address them that way. They are immature. They're operating in a worldly manner. This probably refers back to the time of his initial contact with them. But then... Here's the tragedy, verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Here's the tragedy, and even now you're not yet ready. So the first part of the verse is par for the course. New believers are not going to digest deep spiritual truth. But the second part of the verse is tragic. They remain unable to digest solid spiritual truth. What is that truth? In context, it is their understanding of how the gospel should transform their lives as followers of Christ. They're not tapping into the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. They are tapping into the thought patterns and the relational ways that they're learning from the world about them. Do not make the mistake here, secondly we could say, do not make the mistake to think that milk is the gospel and solid food is deeper doctrine. Some have imposed that idea on this text as well. Milk is the message of salvation. Solid food is the message of salvation applied. Both milk and solid food are through and through the gospel. How Christ has saved us in His death and resurrection and the implications of of that in our lives as followers of Christ. But don't think in those terms, a gospel's milk, and then we go on to the deeper things, but rather all of it is a nurture of the Christian, the milk being salvation in Christ, the solid food salvation applied. So the Corinthians are not getting who they really are. Yes, they have responded to the gospel. They have become spiritual people in their conversion, but they're not applying that. It's not changing their life the way that it should. On what evidence do you make that judgment, Paul? 
Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy, strife among you, are you not of the flesh behaving in a human way? Key interpretive point here. Of the flesh, another way of saying that, we could prove this particularly from the Greek, but of, another way of saying that is characterized by the flesh. That is characterized by the fruits of the flesh, for instance, that we saw in Galatians chapter 5. That's more characteristic of you than is the transforming power of the gospel in the life of the believer, which you are, and things need to change. So Paul is not saying they are in Adam. When he says of the flesh, he doesn't mean you're in Adam, of course. They're in Christ, chapter 1 and verse 30. But their characteristic way of life tracks with people who are in Adam. They are behaving in a human way. That is, you're living in a way that is characteristic of unsaved people. And this competitiveness, this jealousy, this strife, these factions, your incapacity to get along with one another is an evidence that you're not understanding the implications of the gospel. So their jealousy of one another, their infighting, their incapacity to reconcile was the bad fruit of the bad root of not getting who Christ had created them to be. Get the gospel, and quarreling and division and strife and jealousy get rooted out. Feed on the solid food of the gospel, and these areas will dry up. The gospel unites and it reconciles. It calibrates our hearts to reach out in love and forgiveness and peace. It does not display itself in competitive animosity. Let's move on to the solid food, to the application of the gospel in your life. Verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What irony. You interview probably any Corinthian member who's caught in this mess, and they would argue that they were right. That division was a result of fighting for what is best and for what is right. Paul says, no, it simply exposes that you are remedial in your understanding of how the gospel transforms relationships into things of beauty and reconciliation. Now, I said we'd return to reasons for not viewing this passage as teaching three categories of Christians. Working through it to that point, let me now give four reasons why I think we should reject that uh, interpretation. First of all, Paul uses spiritual only in reference to believers, all of whom have the Holy Spirit. That would be quite clear to teach that from all that Paul has written. All believers are spiritual people. That is, they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So it would violate Paul's use of spiritual to suggest that there is a whole category of Christians who are not spiritual. His terminology would conflict with itself. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, notice this uh, passage. Where am I? There it is. You, however, are not in the flesh... Now here he's not talking about being characterized by the flesh, but here he's talking about your headship. You're, you are not in Adam. You are not in the flesh, 
you are in the Spirit. You see, there's two options here. You're in the flesh or you're in the Spirit. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. You're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit. If in fact, Now, I'm not telling you I can read your heart. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. I mean, He may not. If your conversion is not genuine or you haven't trusted Christ as Savior, because I'm not telling you that He dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Thus, anyone who does belong to Him has the Spirit. And we could prove that from significant number of texts uh, in Paul's writings. Back to the point. To argue that pretty much all Christians following their conversion are fleshly and not spiritual completely misrepresents the way Paul speaks. So to think of a category of Christians who are not spiritual turns his terminology on its head. There is no such category anywhere in Paul's writings. Secondly, to divide the church into two classes, carnal and spiritual, would promote the sort of division that Paul is arguing against in this letter. He's arguing for unity. How strange it would be to put jerseys on two types of Christians in the church. The carnal ones and the spiritual ones. I mean, he'd be introducing the very division he's working against. If Paul wants to teach two classes of Christians, this is not a good context in which to do it. be really bad to bring that point up here because it would work against everything he's saying. I think the point is he's not saying that. Number three, Paul's theology is in sync with the entire Bible, which repeatedly declares that there are two ways to live, not three. Light, darkness, saved, lost, redeemed, enslaved, enlightened, benighted. And in this immediate context, remember chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. The natural person and the spiritual person. Again and again through Scripture, it's two ways to live. Lost or saved. Number four, while no proof in itself, the carnal Christian hamstrings church discipline. Paul does not encourage the church to endure carnal Christians who cannot be expected to live righteous lives. Rather, he exhorts those living in sin to determine if they are in fact in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. That's the approach that he takes. So for these reasons, and others could be added and much ink has been spilled, the Corinthians are not being identified as the second-tier group of Christians. What he's saying is, you're lost or you're saved. I've got to talk to you like you're lost. You are living in such a godless manner with such immature application of how the gospel changes relationships that I've got to talk to you as if you're not even saved. You are. I've said it probably 50 times in various ways up to this point. But you're not acting like it. You're acting like you don't understand what the gospel does. 
So the Corinthians are wearing the jerseys of their favorite teachers, Paul, Apollos, Peter, or the holier-than-thou Christ faction, and they're fighting one another. Paul now calls the church to take steps forward in maturity, and here we learn, secondly, that united service in Christ's cause evidences a church's maturity. Self-serving factions expose the local church's immaturity, but united service in Christ's cause evidences a church's maturity. Eden Baptist Church, if we are maturing, that will be evidenced in united service for Christ together. A mission higher than our own personal agendas, a mission greater than what we want, that is focused on what Christ is doing in this world. That's what maturity will look like. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. As the Lord assigned to each, I think, means each of these leaders that you so revere, Paul and Apollos, is assigned to his task by the Sovereign Lord. So what is Paul's servants through whom you believe that the Lord assigned to each? And what term best fits those who lead the church? What is it? Servants. Servants. I mean, think of it. Christianity turns everything on its head. A crucified Messiah. Wisdom that comes not from human reason and ingenuity, but by way of revelation. The chosen of God, not many powerful, not many of noble birth, the foolish, the despised, the weak, the outcast. And leadership, here it is. You want to know the true leader with power, with capacity, with lordship. Let me give you a picture of that leader. It's late on a spring night. He's gathered with his disciples on the night that he's betrayed and knows that he will die. And I want you to look and see him. There he is on his knees with a bowl of water and a towel washing his disciples' muddy feet. That's your Lord. It turns everything on its head. We are servants. Gospel transformation. Let's think of it now. Why, why do we get out of leadership as servant, which Christ clearly demonstrated to us, and so many using the church where it's leadership as self-promotion? How do we get there? I think just thinking through it, gospel transformation is the most amazing enterprise on the planet. Now, we may not always perceive this, but it is true, and we know it in our guts as born-again believers. The risen Christ is saving a people for His name, calling dead souls to life through the Gospel, bringing them into churches which will one day enter into His presence and on the new earth carry on forever to the glory of God. This is the greatest enterprise on the planet. 
In that enterprise, secondly, God uses teachers to communicate His revelation to His people. And as God does this, some find it easy to become enamored with those teachers. There is a right veneration of pastors and theologians, which the Bible commends, certainly, but it is a short trail to developing a kind of veneration that elevates the man at the expense of Christ's reputation and the health of the church. And this is where imposters come in and say, this amazing relationship, I'm going to tap into this I'm going to use this to promote myself. The antidote to this problem is for all of us to recognize we are Christ's servants. Servants in this great cause, which is empowered only by Him. You see what Paul's saying here, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? We are servants through whom you believed. As God sent us, assigned us this task. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Paul planted the gospel seed when he witnessed Christ to the unsaved Corinthians and ministered there for a year and a half. Then the gifted, articulate Apollos came in and watered that seed by further discipling the Corinthians, teaching them the full counsel of God. And somewhere along the line, apparently, the Apostle Peter was used, influenced them as well. But it's God that made the plant grow, and God alone can. Certain church leaders can elevate themselves in that mix and draw crowds of adoring fans. But only God can affect the transforming power of the gospel in the lives of people. Only God. So you can, with personality and with money, and in our culture particularly, with entertainment and phenomenal experience, you can get a massive crowd that elevates leaders, but nothing in there can be accomplished of true, lasting worth. God alone can save. It's His work alone. He is the one who makes the plant grow. During my high school days, I occasionally worked on one of my uncle's farms, and my task, uh, well, there were others, but the one that I will never forget is pulling volunteer corn out of a bean field. So you got beans, and there's these shoots of corn from the year before that come up and you got to yank them out as you walk down the the the, and the rows and on occasion uh, the family's been traveling and we go by that cornfield and I point it out and then I always tell them what I did there can you imagine if I went by that field and pointed out to my family, There's my, that was my uncle's farm field, that's where I pulled out the volunteer corn, that's where I made the beans grow. I mean, how, how stupid, how silly would that be? No, I, I pulled corn, I didn't make the beans grow. That's a, in a sense what Paul is saying. We had nothing to do with the supernatural growth that God alone can cause. We were His assigned representatives as His servants to proclaim the Gospel to you, but God made it grow. 
So get this about us teachers, Paul says, verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. Go back to my parable. The team is one. You guys are fighting over your favorite player, but we're all on the same team. We're accomplishing the same work. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. It's not that that labor is unimportant. Pulling the volunteer corn is part of how you get a good yield. What you do is important, but it's God who makes it grow. For we are God's, verse 9, fellow workers. You are God's field, His building. We are God's fellow workers. I think that means that they were partnering together in the work that they were doing. And think of this work in your own salvation. Have you ever traced out the string? Those of you that were saved later in life, this is a little bit easier to do. But trace out the string. How many people were involved in that process? You start putting it together, if you really think carefully about it, many times there's quite a group. It may have been literature that was written, then edited by somebody, then published by somebody, then distributed by somebody, that was given to you by somebody else, found your way as you considered that literature. Or there was a witness by one individual that you thought was the stupidest thing you'd ever heard, but it was like a pebble in your shoe. You you couldn't quite forget about it. And somebody else came along and proclaimed that same message. Or could be connected to teaching in the church or the preaching of of an assembly and the like. We're in this together. There is one Lord. There is one project. We come at it as fallen, corrupt, weak, failing people, but we are in this one enterprise. To proclaim Christ crucified and risen for the glory of His name as we rely upon the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the power of God to make it grow. So burn your jerseys, Paul says, so to speak. Quit this. Let's move on to maturity. I'm not talking to you about how to get out of this category of carnal Christian and giving you these plans of how to make this next step, I'm saying start acting like the person you are. In Christ, He has saved you and transformed you, and that transformation touches every relationship that you have. So start acting like it. We learn certainly something from this passage that is uh, crucial about pastors. In light of this text, any seminary student who has ambition to be known, to become important in the eyes of others, has no idea what ministry is and is right now not fit to be a pastor. Pastors serve the Christ who washed His disciples' feet and calls pastors not to lord it over the flock. Serving Christ demands that a shepherd say with authority, this is the way, we must walk in it. But serving Christ is no enterprise to get our way to rule, to control, to rise in prominence. Such notions are anathema to the risen Christ who will hold shepherds accountable for such attitudes. 
we are secondly also reminded in this passage that the church really does belong to Jesus. It really does. The risen Christ alone can save souls. The risen Christ alone sovereignly places us as members in the body of Christ. He alone, His will, His way alone are determinative. We don't always know what that way is in the nitty-gritty of ministry or agree on what it is as church members. But in the revealed doctrines and principles of His Word, let us affirm together that He alone is Lord. And every energy of this assembly is to be calibrated to lifting high the name of Jesus Christ. Period. Thirdly, we also are instructed to recognize that division and dissension reveals an immaturity that fails to understand and apply the reconciling power of God. The reconciling power of the Gospel. Now these, now there are obviously issues of false doctrine that we must resist despite the conflict it may cause. I mean, think of the book we're reading. It's not like Paul's saying, I just have to be unified at all costs. I can't address anything wrong. No, that's not the case. We must also exercise church discipline against those who re refuse to obey God's Word. The Scriptures call us to this. So it's not a unity at all costs. But spiritual maturity learns to graciously put up with others. And I, I would appeal to you as a church, as I appeal to my own heart, ask yourself these questions. Consider this. Is this where I'm at in my spiritual walk? Spiritual maturity learns to graciously put up with other people. It seeks forgiveness. And it loves to grant forgiveness. may not always be easy, but it loves to do it. Spiritual maturity loves reconciliation and extending love to enemies, let alone love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Spiritual maturity does not compete. It doesn't argue. It doesn't form teams and sides or refuse to relate to others in the body because Jesus died for each member. Think of how appalling sometimes is our internal orientation to certain individuals when we put that up against the fact that Jesus knew them by name from eternity past and gave his life to die in their place. If I just take the milk of the gospel, it's thank you Jesus for saving me. But if I begin to chew on the solid food of how that gospel changes my life, I begin to look at individuals very differently. I say Jesus laid down his life for him, for her, for them. That's got to change how I relate to them. This is the wisdom from above. This is the wisdom of divine revelation. And number four, we also learn in this passage the importance that God places then on cooperative gospel enterprise. No one spreads the gospel alone. We are called to labor together to plant, to water, to reap according to God's purpose and will. And, and if you look at your life and say, I don't plant, I don't water, I don't reap. If you're a member of this church, you do. 
And maybe what we need to do is see ourselves less individualistically of what I specifically do, not to take light off of that, but to recognize that we need to see ourselves in cooperation with one another, laboring for the gospel enterprise worldwide as there are all types of people in that string who plant and water and reap. God alone producing the fruit. What an opportunity we have tonight. As Brian Davis comes, a unique man, uniquely gifted and on point with us and what God has revealed about the local church in the New Testament. We're thrilled to think of where this may lead and how more light can be uh, shown in a particular corner of this great city. We come together not just to hear, hey, let's just hear what this one individual says, but to say, how can we partner with him? If that is prayer alone, or in some other way, and tonight as we take gifts to support that church plant in northeast Minneapolis, what an opportunity for us to put this right into practice. To say, I want to participate with those who are spreading the gospel in another place. And on and on it goes in our opportunities that we seek. One of the gravest dangers to our church is how you and I perceive it. May God help us grow in the maturity that rightly applies the effects and the implications of the, go- of the gospel in our life together for His glory and for the good of His people. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we need help to this end. I pray that where there is conviction of Your Spirit, that we will take that to heart, that we will consider carefully how we relate to one another. I pray, Father, that we would consider carefully how we relate to the great theologians and teachers and unique leaders of our world. I pray that we'd not become overly locked into one name. That we would be as good as wearing the jersey of our great Bible teacher, our great theologian. We're all helped more by some individuals than others as we put together our understanding of Scripture. But I pray that we'd be open to recognize that there's not one voice that speaks your truth with absolute perfection and fullness. We need many voices, and we need not to lock into any one individual to revere in such a way that belongs to Christ alone. Help us to this end as your people. And Lord, to those who may still be in the spot of judging Christ on the basis of their own human intellect and reason, help them to see this different message. This message of a revelation that comes from above of the triune God in the person of the Son taking on flesh to pay the cost of our sin, which is death, and to rise again to give us life in His name. Lord, open eyes to that truth and may all of us embrace it. And I plead for Eden Baptist Church that we would not simply take the milk of the gospel that converts but the solid food that continues to nurture us in maturity to know how that gospel applies in every nook and cranny of our lives. Aid us there. Help us to think there, to be growing there as we consider these truths. And we praise you.
for your goodness to us in Christ to that end. In his name we pray. Amen.